All right. Uh, don't forget to pray for Jeff Phipps. He was supposed to have come uh, back from Brazil today. So we'll be getting a report from him within the next week or two on how his ministry went there. And then uh, pray for him and his, I don't know how much jet lag you get. You haven't really jumped too many time zones, but pray for his quick recovery. Also, uh, the men's prayer breakfast this uh, this month will be a week from this coming Saturday on the 13th at 7.30 in the morning. So be sure to, if you guys are regularly coming, be sure to invite somebody else uh, in the church to uh, to show up. And uh, continue to pray for the outreach that this church has through the uh, book on God's powerful promises. Every day almost I am hearing, um, you know, more reports about uh, things that are going on. I I don't know if we have secured a um, a translator yet. I think so. Did you send the quacks the English? Okay. Good, then they can get that to the translator, but I haven't heard back. All right, so we have things going on on there. We do have a, a German translation, which we just need to have proofread, and then we can um, we can go to print. And also got a report from Charles Musanda, who is the pastor of the Gilgal Assembly in um, Livingstone, Zambia. And he's had, uh, he said, Jim, Jim's been there the last, I think, three weeks, Jim Myers, and so uh, has had a great ministry there, good ministry, and Jim's on his way home. He'll get back tomorrow. And then, um, uh, but also he said that they've run out uh, of the Promise Book, so we're going to be printing some more there within the next uh, next week or so to keep keep that supplied. So just a lot of things going on there. And uh, uh, Phyllis Myers wrote a booklet that was back there in the back. I have, didn't see one uh, Sunday or tonight, but it's been translated into Ukrainian. So we also need to pray for that, getting it printed and kind of bundling the two together when we send them out to these different different churches. But both of us independently started thinking about uh, finding somebody who had contacts, can find out how to send printed material to the Russian POWs in Ukraine. So that's what one of the things we're thinking about is getting the gospel, having some kind of impact within the the POW camps that the Ukrainians have for the Russian prisoners. So uh, everybody needs to hear the gospel, and that can have a big impact on uh, the way things are going over there. So be in prayer for all, all of those things. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my, light unto my path and a lamp unto my feet. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer and uh, if necessary, you can pr- have silent prayer to make sure you're in right relationship with the Lord. And then uh, after a few moments, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's a wonderful privilege that we have every time we gather together in freedom to teach your word, to uh, study it, to reflect upon how it applies to our lives and our thinking about the world around us. And Father, we pray that tonight as we continue to study in this these very difficult passages at the end of the book of Judges, uh, dealing with the internal fragmentation and collapse of the nation Israel as they uh, turn their back on you and we see uh, a reflection of what we're doing in this nation and what Israel did in the Old Testament and how when a nation gets away from the Lord it turns to itself for answers and for hope where there is none 
and the end result is arrogance predominates, division occurs, and implosion results. So, Father, we do pray for our nation that you would raise up men and women who are people who take seriously what you have in your word, that it may transform their lives and the lives of this nation, because that this is the only hope for us, is to turn back to the eternal principles of your word. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we continue our study in this last episode in... Uh, in the book of Judges, as we are reminded that the theme of the book of Judges is stated a couple of times. The last time it is stated is in the very last verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And actually, in the Hebrew translation or Hebrew original, it's everyone did what was good in their own eyes, whatever they thought was the right thing to do at the time. And that's the problem. Uh, God had predicted this in the book of Deuteronomy, that they would get to that point. And so what they are doing is evil in the eyes of the Lord. And when we turn away from the Word of God, then the only way we can turn is to human thinking. And human thinking is always the path to collapse Twice in Proverbs we read that there is a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. And so we continue to see how the rejection of God as their king has led Israel to a state of internal chaos and and collapse. So just to remind you of what we've learned in this last episode, which began in chapter 19 and goes through the end of chapter uh, 21, which is one of the which is the second longest section in the book of Judges of all the all the deliverer cycles dealing with the different judges. Gideon's cycle is the only one that is longer, so that. Just a reminder that that means God wants us to pay attention to what is going on here and to look at these at these details. So it begins with the crisis in the home. And the failure of a nation always begins with the failure in the home. There was a book that came out a number of years ago titled, It Takes a Village. It's biblically false. It's biblically false because what it takes is a family. It takes a family. There are three original divine institutions that were established by God uh, before there was ever sin in the world. The first was human responsibility, that every human is responsible for their lives, for the decisions they make, for the actions they take, and they are responsible first and foremost to God, and then they are responsible to those in authority over them uh, in this world. Second divine institution is marriage uh, between one man and one woman. The third divine institution flows from that, which is the family. And those were set up as, as sort of social structure laws that God built into the human race that when they are violated, human society collapses. But when they are upheld, then human society can experience uh, stability and prosperity and, and growth. But as the uh, pointed out a couple of weeks ago, that the New York Times back in 2010 made the statement that um, uh, that the American family has been nuked, and that is absolutely correct. And so there's very few examples in history where there is a reversal that takes place. Uh, and so we can pray for that, that God would be gracious to us. So this crisis began in the home when the concubine slash wife of the Levite priest uh, leaves, gets all mad at him and heads back to her uh, to her father. And that crisis develops into a national crisis that leads to complete fragmentation between uh, the tribes of Israel leading to a major civil war. 
Second thing we see that we have learned is that this crisis begins with that Levite. You have the flare-up in the home, and there's a lack of authority orientation in the home as this concubine does what's right in her own eyes. And that leads to further problems. So third, we've learned that um, on their travels that they left, they procra- he procrastinated because he let uh, her father continue to uh, cajole him uh, to enjoy another glass of beer, another glass of wine, eat more, and then he would stay too late. And so they delayed their leaving twice. And then the third day, uh, he left late in the evening, so they couldn't travel very far. And because of those bad decisions, irresponsible decisions, a violation of the first divine institution, they end up... um, not staying in Jebus, which was the first town, which is later, it's called by, it's, the later name is Jerusalem. And so he decides to stay in Gibeah because, well, those people are Jews also, so we'll stay with them. And they end up being in a horrible, uh, horrible situation. And then fourth, uh, he's offered hospitality in uh, Gibeah by another non-Gibeite who's not from there. He's an Ephraimite who's also visited there, but he is fearful for their safety. So that's an example of the law uh, in uh, Leviticus 19.18, that we should love our neighbor as ourselves, and he's exhibiting that, although the people in Gibeah are not. Uh, they are uh, evil, and they're later described as the sons of Belial, which means they're the sons of chaos. They bring chaos and disruption wherever they go because of their rebellion against God. So when the night came, then these men who were uh, sodomites uh, surround the house, began to bang on the door, and first there's a negotiation with the owner of the home, and they're pressuring him and intimidating him so much that he goes, and he's going to give them his daughter and um, and the concubine, the wife of the Levitical priest, which he does, and they engage in a, a gang rape overnight. And the next day, this Lev- Levitical priest is so callous, which just reflects the, how callous the priesthood is towards uh, towards people at this time and towards the spiritual condition that he opens the door and she's lying there. He doesn't know if she's dead or alive and he sort of nudges her and says, get up, let's pack up and go. And he's not even concerned about her welfare or what has happened. And it turns out that she has uh, died from the injury suffered the night before. And so what he does is he will carve up her body and then he will uh, send body parts around to the um, uh, to the nation to call the people to arms. And we'll see tonight that that was not an unusual thing in the culture of the ancient ancient world. So we see the anatomy of national self-destruction going on here. Second, we see that um, I have a question because. Uh, after the people come together and they're going to go to war, they will ask God for guidance. And they say, shall we go up against them? And God says, yes. And they go and they get just slaughtered on the battlefield. And they come back and they go before the Lord and they weep before the Lord. And then they go to the Lord a second time and have a similar conversation. The Lord said, yes, go up, go to battle. And they are uh, just decimated again, high casualties. So they come back, but then they change things. And um, that's what's significant, is they're not doing it the right way. A right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. A wrong thing done in a wrong way is right, or a wrong thing done in a right way is wrong. Only a right thing done in a right way is right. And so they are trying to get God's blessing on going to war the wrong way. They're not approaching God according to the uh, Levitical law. So again, it's an example that they are uh, approaching God in terms of what they think is best and not in terms of what God has, has told them. So we need to address this question. Well, why in the world does God's guidance lead to their defeat on the battlefield? 
this seems pretty pretty bad but we'll we'll discuss that as we get there third we see how the decisions of individuals within the nation impact a whole nation it's for bad in light of the levitical priest in this story and the levitical priest in the previous episode and then we have we do have one spiritual hero that shows up in this chapter and that's Phineas the the high priest who is the grandson of Aaron and we'll get to that perhaps tonight i don't know so that is what's going on now when we look at the structure of these chapters what we see is the background to the attack in uh, chapter 19, verses 1 through 9, telling us the basic story of the Levite and his concubine and her uh, getting fed up with him, mad at him, going home to her daddy, and uh, staying, he lets her stay away before he goes to get her. Then we get the details of the horrific attack, and that's covered in 19 verses. 19 verses, that's a long story. Now, it's not a pleasant episode, but obviously the Holy Spirit thinks it's important to pay attention to because he takes 19 uh, verses to do so. Then we get into the chapter that we're in now, uh, into chapter 20, and it has 48 verses. And this is Israel's response to the attack. And then finally, we'll see next time that there's, it creates a national implosion in uh, chapter uh, 21, and that, that is the uh, end to our, will be the end to our study in Judges. So a couple of principles that we have uncovered, which need to be reviewed. First of all, as goes the believer, so goes the nation. When Christians get away from the Word of God, and in this nation we have lots of people who call themselves Christians, go to churches that talk about the importance of the Bible, but they're doing the same kind of thing we see the Israelites doing in this chapter. They're just giving lip service to God. They're not really submitting to God. They're not serious students of the Word of God. They're not letting the Word of God change the way they think and the way they act and the way they live. And when that happens... When the believer is strong and there's a large number of believers in a nation, it transforms the nation and it has prosperity. But when the vast number are disobedient, then it leads to internal chaos and implosion. Second thing we see is that that at the core of this is the assault on sexuality. It's an assault on the divine institution of marriage, which is divine institution number two, and it's a, it is a an attack on the family. And we see this same thing going now with the rise over the last 40 years of the LGBTQ movement and the militancy that's there. And now we see it in these trans movements that are going on and transgenderism and states that have passed laws that have allowed uh, schools or doctors to perform uh, gender reassignment surgery on minors, that is, children under the age of 18 without parents' permission. This is an attack on the family, and it just further uh, creates chaos in, in, in the nation. And this morning, I heard a report on, on the news that uh, the left is now making transgenderism and the, 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 um, their, uh, uh, their belief in the uh, propriety of the LGBTQ uh, plus movement, the standard in running in the next elections. This is going to be their, one of their main primary issues. And th- that's where our nation is headed. Uh, and it will lead to complete destruction if we go that way. Uh, a state of antagonism exists ever since the fall of man with Adam and Eve. Uh, ever since their disobedience to God, uh, there is a state of antagonism 
uh, between men and women. Now, there certainly is a state of antagonism between all individuals because we've made ourselves our own God, and so uh, I'm not going to worship you as God, and I want you to worship me as God. And that arrogance is what drives so much of the conflict in the human race. But it's uh, specifically stated by God uh, that the, as part of the curse, the woman will have a desire to dominate, to rule, to be the one who uh, determines the uh, path of the, of the marriage, and the husband will try to exercise his authority uh, in a domineering manner, and that is the root of the battle of the sexes. And in pagan cultures which we are now a pagan culture. In pagan cultures, one sex or the other dominates, and it dominates in a, in a non-biblical way, and you have the development of human viewpoint patriarchy, or you get human viewpoint matriarchy. And in human viewpoint patriarchy, women are abused and discounted and not treated uh, in many ways as they should be as equal image bearers of God. And we see this now in the, the horrible way in which um, so many schools and universities and organizations are validating uh, trans women, these men who think they're women, to let them compete against women in all kinds of sports. And that just diminishes and demeans women. So we can't have we can't have that. That's just wrong. But it shows how degraded uh, degraded we are in our thinking. So the only solution is to return to the Bible's viewpoint, the divine viewpoint, recognition of the roles of males and females, uh, and the equality they have as being created in the image of God. So in chapter 19 we see some hint of a negative spirituality in that God's name is not mentioned. He's not sought. They don't talk about him. Here you have a Levitical priest who is at the center, who is supposed to be the one who carries the nation forward spiritually, teaching them the Torah and advising them on how to live their spiritual life, and he is as much a part of the problem as, as anyone. Uh, also, by this time, we see that the nation is in this rebellious period, the period of the judges, but it's early on. And we see that for a, no, a number of reasons. We po- I've pointed the, them out recently. We saw that one of the negative influencers was the, um, uh, the priest, the Levitical priest in the story of uh, Micah's uh, idolatry in chapter 17 and 18, and it turns out he's the grandson of Moses. And in this chapter, we have a hero who is the grandson of Aaron. And so th- they are living, that has to be very early in the time period uh, of the judges. And there are uh, other indications for all of the nations except Benjamin band together, they're unified, all the children of Israel, all the sons of Israel literally come together in order to deal with this crisis. And they don't have that kind of unity anywhere else uh, that comes later in the period of the judges. Uh, By then, this uh, paganism, self-centered arrogance has taken such root in the nation that it is fragmenting, uh, fragmenting the nation. So uh, this shows it's just a, a, a problem at the beginning. So we have this pattern that takes place. I've listed about five different ways that we see a pattern going. And the first stage is what we see in numerous nations through history. And that is a nation will start at a spiritual high point. They have a positive volition towards God. They are trusting in God. And they, but it's followed later by a period of spiritual complacency. They are not focused on the Lord anymore. You go back and you study the history of this nation, and you go back to the 19th, uh, I'm excuse me, the uh, 17th century, the pilgrims, the Puritans that came, uh, later the Scots Irish Presbyterians that came in the uh, uh, 18th century. 
They are focused on the Lord. They build great educational centers because they understand that that every citizen needs to be able to read so that they can understand God's will for their life by, by reading the Bible. And so uh, that's very strong. But by the time you get into the mid-19th century, the 1850s, they're turning to other, uh, other ideologies uh, within the nation. They still ha- are giving lip service uh, to Christianity. But 19th century European Protestant liberalism is beginning to take hold in the pulpits. And you also see the rise of alternate views of human origins, rejecting the Bible uh, and accepting uh, Darwinism and evolution. And so there is a shift. Man is, is put on the throne. You have the rise of secular humanism, where the human race is all uh, centered, so it's it, it, we become our culture became more and more arrogant, more preoccupied with self, and you see the arrogant skills at work: self-absorption, self-indulgence, self-justification, self-deception, and self-deification. Uh, then we get into the second stage, uh, where you have more open rebellion against God's authority, and pagan thinking begins to set in. And I would say that this uh, happened to a degree in the 19th century, but it's it's really there in the 20th century. In America, in, in Europe, it, postmodernism took root before World War One, and continued. In America, you see it beginning or attempting to get a handhold during the time of the Roaring Twenties. But two things stopped it. One was the Great Depression, and the other was the uh, development of World War II. And so you don't really see its ramp ramping up its influence again until you get into the late 1950s and into the early 60s. And many uh, historians will see that we turned the corner and around 1963 or 1964, and Sidney Alstrom, who was the head of the uh, church history department at, at Yale, identified 1964 as when we entered the post-Puritan era. And by that, he means the post-Christian era. And um, even though there were some uh, positive signs in the late 60s with the so-called Jesus Revolution and that you you really so that was the heyday the late 60s 70s and 80s were the heyday of the bible church movement and then they got ca- all caught up with the underlying paganism that comes out of the charismatic movement the pentecostal movement and the result is that you just see th- that whole movement just uh just disappear so what we see today is a very small number and i read to you the statistics the report um that came out a, a couple of months ago uh, that indicated that that as a result of our uh, of COVID, we went from having three percent of Americans holding to a consistent consistent biblical worldview. Now that worldview has that they have was nine points, very conservative. Nine ways that you uh, understand about the scripture, and then, um, but that was in 1920. I mean, 2020, that it was three percent. The one they took this last uh, winter in February in 2023. uh, This is done by the Barna organization. He's a solid evangelical, and it resulted one and a half percent. Of Americans, so the number of Americans that held to a consistent biblical worldview was cut in half in three years. So less than less than uh, three people out of a two hundred will hold to a biblical worldview, and it's a failure of the pulpits, and it's a failure of the people. So this just leads to. Arrogance and arrogance always puts an emphasis on external realities, and it gives rise to self-righteousness. And there's no more self-righteousness in this country than the political left. 
they are forcing everyone to do what they want to do, say what they want to say, or they'll cancel the culture. Uh, they'll tear things down. They will yell louder than you. And so there's no sense of the uh, constitutionally recognized freedoms that are in the Bill of Rights. So this is just a, a self-righteousness that comes out of the hostility of paganism uh, towards biblical truth. Then we have the third stage, which idolatry and false doctrine uh, dominate the soul. And this is what happens all through our culture right now. And you see the rise of bitterness and jealousy, hostility and vindictiveness and the rise of violence that is taking place on, on our streets. And this is exacerbated by the fact that we're not keeping the border safe. And it has nothing to do with how you feel about immigration. It has to do with an orderly system of protecting the nation's borders just as a homeowner protects the property that they're on. It's a recognition of private property, but it's at the national level. And what is happening at our border is we are being infiltrated by, by uh, these drug cartels out of Mexico in many ways, and the amount of fentanyl and other drugs coming across the border is, is just beyond our imagination. And it, it, it is just horrible, and it is a, a, a war against the United States, and it's being funded uh, by a number of sources, but China is one of them. So this is part of the problems that happens. It just, just and it creates hostility between people and and vindictiveness. So this is what we see here: is that the uh, war against the Benjamites is as much motivated by vindictiveness and hostility uh, as anything else. So what happens in stage four is once we convert the outside pressure of adversity. In this case, it's the criminality that is, appears in Gibeah into stress, then the sin nature just takes over and tries to solve the problem with all kinds of man-centered uh, methods. But these man-centered methods don't do it. They just create another stage of chaos and a breakdown of spirituality and a breakdown of society. So it just gets worse and worse, the only solution, the only hope is to turn to Jesus Christ as Savior and to let your thinking be completely renovated by the Word of God. The other day I was in a conversation with some people and they were talking about how important it is to pray. And yes, prayer is right, but prayer is not going to, God is not going to reach down and change people's volition. People have to decide that they want to uh, believe in Christ as Savior. And then they have to decide that they want to learn how to glorify God by learning His Word and applying it in the way they think and talk and act. And those, that's what has to happen. Even if we had 80% of the people in this country who were born again does not mean that they have changed the way they think, talk, and act. They have, have to grow. It took from the founding of this nation in, um, in 1776. Um, well, let's go back a little further. The, 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 when the first uh, colonists started coming here, it took, and that, that was 100 years after the Reformation began. Okay, so they already had with them the intellectual, spiritual baggage of the theology of the scripture and they understood the role of government so you have a hundred years of development in Europe in the Protestant Reformation and then when the colonists start coming they're here for another hundred and seventy-five years before it produces the Constitution 275 years to transform this this country and you know there's no quick solution there's no easy solution it has to come because people are changed on the inside. So the the alternative is the fifth stage, which is what we're seeing in the period of the judges, is that the nation polarizes. And we see this all the time. We've heard this kind of talk for the last 10 or 12 years about 
some states want to split so that the conservative part of the state can join with a conservative state and leave the uh, liberal coast to somebody else. We see here talk about civil war. We see riots in the streets. And all of this is just the result of the polarization, and it inevitably leads to some sort of civil violence. Now, it may not take the form of the American war between the states, which involved the whole country. You can look at what's happening here. It just involves uh, the 11 tribes against one tribe, against Benjamin. But they nearly annihilated the entire tribe. There were more people killed in Benjamin and in this Civil War total than were killed in Desert Storm, Vietnam, and Korea combined. That's the death toll in this Civil War with with Benjamin. And so this is the result of everything that had been going on uh, prior to this. So the pattern continues, and what we see is the sexual perversion in Benjamin, which those in Benjamin are not upset with. They don't see what the problem is. They don't understand what the problem is. They're good with it. We're not going to punish anybody. And so that deteriorated into apostasy and reversionism. This repeats itself later on in the history of the nation. In Hosea 9.9, Hosea announces a condemnation of Israel at that time, that they are deeply corrupted as in the days of Gibeah. Referring right back to this civil war, what is going on right here, that this repeated itself later on uh, prior to their destruction by, by Babylon. And in Hosea 10.9, O Israel, you have sinned uh, from the days of Gibeah. There they stood, the battle in Gibeah against the children of iniquity. So this is a serious problem, and it's not the first or last time that it takes place in human history. So what we see here, too, is that the people have an approach to God in chapter uh, chapter 20 that they didn't have in chapter 19. It, it, if you uh, look just uh, looking over the chapter, it talks about, uh, in verse 1, the congregation, and it's a word that is used there that is used in Joshua to refer to the the Israelites coming together uh, to worship the Lord. And so you have this phrase, the congregation gathered has that kind of overtone. And they're united. They gather together as one man before the Lord. You have other passages that talk about their recognition of evil and wickedness in verse 12 and verse 13. But it's a recognition from a pagan viewpoint, not from a, a viewpoint where they're submitted to the Torah. And I think this is one reason why God allows, God wants them to go into battle and they're going to fail and they're going to suffer significant losses because it's part of God's discipline on them to get their attention that they have to do it his way and they can't do it their way. Because what finally happens the third time is they approach him with burnt offerings and with, uh, thanks and with peace offerings. And because they come to the Lord the way he told them to in Leviticus, and for the first time it is under the authority of the high priest who is Phineas, then God is going to respond to them and give them the victory over Benjamin. So all of this is very important to understand that that this history uh, must be understood and interpreted correctly. A lot of people think, well, history teaches us what we should do and what we shouldn't do. Only if you have the epistles and the specific teaching of Scripture and the Torah that tells you how to do things. This is history just illustrates what happens when you're obedient or when you're disobedient. You don't get doctrine from history and narrative. 
you get doctrine from the uh, uh, from the instructional passages in the Bible, and then you look at the narratives because they give you illustrations of of these things. So the geographical area is on the map. Uh, whenever you look at a passage or look at some issue in Scripture, or talk about anybody, you have to ask those big questions. Who is it talking about? Where are they? Uh, what are they doing? What is happening? Uh, when is this happening? And so as we've learned that geography and chronology are very important. The Bible is the only religious book in all of human history that is built on that which occurs in space-time history. Space refers to geography, and time refers to the, the chronology. So chronology is important and geography are important because you can look at any number of these religious books, even religious books like the Book of Mormon that talk about things that happen in a specific location, but you can't find those locations anywhere on the earth. They've never been discovered. The peoples that are mentioned have never been identified. But you can go, like we're going to be going to Israel in another in another month. You can go to Israel and you can stand on the very spot where Abraham and Sarah uh, built an altar between Bethel and Ai. And you can go to the Sea of Galilee and you can go to where uh, and see where Peter and the others, Peter and John and And James and Andrew, were were commercial fishermen. And you can go to the Sea of Galilee and see it. You can go to the Temple Mount, and in Jerusalem, and you can see that. And you can go to Bethlehem, and you can go see the ruins at Gibeah, and the ruins at Bethel, and all of these different places. We're going to go up to. Uh, what was Laish in the Canaanite city and then later was known as Dan, and we'll go right there and look at those sites. And you can do that with the Bible. It happened in a specific time and a specific place. So the area we're talking about here is this yellow area, which is the tribal territory for the tri- for Benjamin, which is a, the smallest of the allotments. So they must have been a small tribe to begin with. And... Um, then you have these locations mentioned, uh, Gibeah, uh, Mizpah, Bethel. They're all right in a line here just north of Jerusalem. And this is uh, Bethel means the house of God. Beth means house. El is the name for God. Bethel, this, they had a sanctuary there. So they go to the house of God in the Hebrew when it says in verse 1 that they... Um, uh, verse 1, they go before the Lord at Mizpah, which is just south of Bethel. And then uh, a couple of verses later, they go to the house of God. That's how it's, um, uh, that's how it's translated. And, but that is um, Bethel. So there had some sort of sanctuary there. The main sanctuary is at Shiloh. I just got word today that they've been excavating there uh, for the last seven years, and uh, Scott Stripling, who is uh, lives over in Katy, actually, and he used to be, uh, teach, he used to teach down at Wharton Junior College, but he is the dig director of uh, of the excavation at at Shiloh, and he's going to give our tour group a tour of Shiloh uh, on June the fifteenth at ten thirty in the morning. So we've got that all all squared away. And uh, Wayne House just came back from there yesterday. He went there, but he had a tour guide from uh, from the park that's there uh, gave him give them a tour. And he said that even though he, like myself, he had been there many times in the past, but a lot of the information that we were told. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, uh, they discovered as a result of this dig wasn't quite accurate. So it's going to be really exciting to find out what all the things uh, that they've discovered there. But we can go right there. So this, the t- tabernacle is here at Shiloh, but they have some sort of altar or sanctuary at Bethel. And so we see the moral outrage. This is where we concluded last time, the moral outrage of the Levite 
and the man of the house, but I just want to focus on what happens right at the end of this very gruesome scene where when um, his wife had been uh, gang-raped and died outside the home, he took her and into the house, and he cut her body into uh, 12 pieces to send to the 12 tribes, limb by limb. And this was a call to arms. Now, that's the kind of thing that we don't have in our history, culture, or background, but this was not unusual at, at that time. The result was that all those tribes that it went to, everybody who saw it was just appalled. They are reacting, not in a biblical way, but they're reacting. They're, they're just shocked by it. Oh, this is terrible. And it is, but they're remember, they're already living in um, a relativistic spirituality in rebellion against God. So they're not responding uh, in a biblical biblically recognized or uh, validated way, but they are shocked by it. And they, they all recognize nothing like this has ever been seen in our history is essentially what they say since we came up out of the land of, of, of Egypt. Now, we found something similar in a, on a clay tablet, tablet in Mari. Mari was a city on the Euphrates River uh, in Babylon. And it was excavated, and they discovered a library there and a number of clay tablets in the Royal Library. And so there's a clay tablet of King Zimri Lim, and this was about 1780 B.C. So this was 300 years before the Israelites came out of slavery in Egypt. This is about the same time as, as uh, the life of Joseph. Okay, so that'll put, fit it within a biblical chronology. And I'm not going to read the whole thing uh, for time purposes, but uh, there's a problem with um, that's taking place there. And, uh, it, well, let me read it to get the context. To my Lord speak, body limb, your servant speaks as follows. For five full days I've waited for the Haneans, but the people do not gather. The Haneans have arrived from the steppe and established themselves among the settlements. Once, twice, I have sent word to the settlements, and the appeal has been made. They're, they need to raise an army to fight these uh, Hanean invaders. And he says to the king, Now, if I had my way, a prisoner in jail should be killed, his body dismembered and transported to the area between the villages as far as the Hudnim and Apan in order that the people would fear and gather quickly. And um, then I could make an attempt in accordance with the command which my Lord has given to carry out the campaign uh, quickly. So what we see in this example is that this was a sort of way in which in the... Uh, ancient Near East, they had developed this system of cutting up uh, someone's body and as a means of calling the people to arms. The symbolism would be uh, something on the order, if you don't gather together to help defend the country, this is what's going to happen to you. So this was something that uh, was common, and it was even practiced in Israel again during the time of Saul. Uh, except instead of a human body, he took a pair of oxen in 1 Samuel 11:7, cut them into pieces, and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, this will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out together as one. So this was uh, an ancient Near Eastern way of sending something out on Twitter to get everybody to come together and uh, go to war. So we have, uh, this, is, this is typical situation. So what happens is the tribes gather, and this is described in verses 1 to 3. And we read, so all the children of Israel came out. Now literally... What it reads is all the sons of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba. Now, the term Dan is kind of a, uh, uh, it is um, 
out of time because, see, we read the story in the previous episodes, chapter 17 and 18, of the tribe of Dan going north to Laish and annihilating the people in Laish and basically stealing the city from them and establishing it. So this is an anachronism where the later name of Dan is put in here. But th- remember, this is early and uh, in in the time period, so it wasn't called Dan. That city wasn't called Dan yet, and this is the first time in the uh, scripture that you have this phrase describing the, the 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 dimensions of the land from north to south, from Dan in the far north to Beersheba in the south. And so that's always what I try to do when I take a group to Israel, is we're going to go from Dan to Beersheba. We're going to see as much as we can uh, as, uh, from the top of the land, north of the land, all the way down uh, to the south. And it says, they all came out from Dan to Beersheba, the whole, all the tribes, all 11 of the tribes, not counting um, Levi, because they're scattered throughout the other tribes, uh, 11 of the tribes come together. And Benjamin, so the Benjamites didn't have to go anywhere. And so they gathered together as one man before the Lord at Mizpah, which is just right there, uh, just to the south of Bethel, just about, and probably from Jerusalem to Mizpah is about probably 10 miles. They gathered together, notice, and here we have this phrase, as one man before the Lord. That's emphasizing their unity. Now, after you get past the first period, the first judge under judgeship under Othniel, and into the uh, second and third judges of Ehud, and then Shamgar and Deborah and Barak, uh, the the nation is really fragmented. So this is very very early on, and you have this phrase as one man shows up. As well, just a minute. I'm, there's, there it is. I'm trying to find my cursor. Um, that appears three times in this passage in verse one and verse eight and eleven, emphasizing uh, the unity and also the phrase "all the tribes of Israel." So that emphasizes th- their unity here. So this puts it uh, very early. Uh, but we don't have anybody from across the Jordan from Jabesh Gilead uh, showing up at this particular time. So the leaders of the people, all the tribes of Israel, presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God. Now that language, as I pointed out earlier, the congregation in verse 1, the assembly here, this is language in the Hebrew that's used to describe the nation when it would gather to worship in the, in the book of, of Joshua. And they presented themselves uh, in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 foot soldiers. That is a sizable army. I was reading in one commentary where the author of that commentary is is more liberal and he has questions about a lot of these numbers. I would take the numbers uh, literally, which would indicate that there were two and a half to three million people that came out of of um, came out of Egypt. Now, the minimalists who don't really give much credence to the Bible or the numbers would say that, nah, there were probably no more than about 100,000 that came out, out of Egypt. But when you compare various other uh, uh, listing of numbers, for example, if you list the, take a look at the half-shekel tax that was to raise money for the taber- tabernacle, the amount of money that came in in, in terms of the half-shekel tax would indicate that you had a population of 3.5 to 4 million. And what you have here is 400,000 uh, foot soldiers uh, would be be about equ- what you would expect from a population of three and a half, uh, two and a half to three uh, million in, in Israel. So it is a significant number of soldiers, and that isn't counting the soldiers of of Benjamin. And so we read. In the parenthesis of verse 3, just as a side note, that the children of Benjamin heard that the children of, of Israel had gone up 
to Mizpah. Then the children of Israel said, Tell us how did this wicked deed happen? How did this come about? Give us a report on the background of what happened. Now, it seems like they must be addressing uh, the Levite. So they're located here at Mizpah, not far from uh, Gibeon. And the Levite gives his account. So we've already gone through the account. The Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, My concubine and I went into Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin, to spend the night. And the men of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house at night because of me. Is that true? They didn't want him. They wanted... They wanted the women in there. There's an indication they were homosexual and they wanted him too, but um, uh, he's leaving out that part. He's leaving out the part that he threw the women out the door to the mob. Uh, So all the men of Gibeah, says, rose against me, surround the house at night. Because of me, they intended to kill me, but instead they ravished uh, my concubine so that she died. So I took hold of my concubine, cut her into pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of the inheritance of Israel uh, because they committed lewdness and outrage in Israel. Now, the word translated lewdness is the Hebrew word zema, which means a disgraceful, shameful behavior, especially uh, fornication, incest, or sexual perversion. In other words, it would incorporate everything that takes place in the LGBTQ plus crowd. That would all come under the category of Zima. It is lewd, uh, forbidden, prohibited, sinful conduct. And then in verse 70, he's, oh, and then the next word that's there is the word outrage, which is the word uh, Nivala. Navala, from the root Nabal, meaning foolish or a fool. Remember, Abigail was married to a fool named Nabal. So this is what it is. It's it's foolishness. It's it's a disgraceful, uh, foolish activity in in Israel. And so uh, the Levite says, "Look, all of you are children of Israel. Give your advice and counsel here now." In other words, what are we going to do about this? How are we going to solve this problem? Verse 8, we see their reaction. So all the people arose as one man. There's a second use of that phrase in terms of their unity, saying none of us will go to his tent, nor will any turn back to his house. But now this is the thing which we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot. Now, here's the question. Have they made a decision as to what they're going to do and how they're going to do it? Yes, they have. They've already determined their course of action. And then the first step is we have to make sure we take care of provisions. Remember, an army always runs on its stomach. So uh, they say we'll take ten men out of every hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel and a hundred out of every thousand, a thousand out of every ten thousand to make provisions for the people. So this is going to be your commissary corps who's going to take care of getting food and preparing it and taking care of all of the soldiers so that when they come to Gibeah in Benjamin, they may repay all the vileness that they have done uh, done in Israel. And so this, again, is a word that indicates just the, the, the wickedness, the horror uh, of what is, what is discovered there. So in verse 11 we read, Thus all the men of Israel were gathered against the city, united. Here it is again. Verse 8, verse 11, second and third time this unity is emphasized. United as one man. Then the tribes of Israel sent men through the entire tribe of Benjamin asking, what is this wickedness that is there? And so the word that is used there for wickedness, or for perverted men, rather, in verse 13, is the sons of Belial, sons of, of um, 
chaos, the sons of destruction. Remember I said last time the rabbi saw that, understood that Belial was another title or name for Satan. The word for wickedness is just the word ra, meaning evil. So they understand that there's some evil there, but remember they're making it up as they go along because everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. So uh, they go to Benjamin and, and make a command. Now, therefore, deliver up the men, the uh, perverted uh, men who are in Gibeah, that we may put them to death, which was the law of the land, that those who committed these kinds of crimes should be, die under the death penalty. And that order came from God and removed the evil from Israel. But the children of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brethren, the children of Israel. So Benjamin is hardened their heart against the rest of the nation. And they have stubbornly refused to respond and turn over the, the criminals. So this leads to the further mobilization of the armies on both sides. In verse 14 we read, Instead, the children of Benjamin gathered together from their cities to Gibeah to go to battle against the children of Israel. And from their cities at that time, the children of Benjamin numbered 26,000 men. So you got 400,000, you got a total of 426,000 men getting ready to go to war, 400,000 against 26,000. And besides that, they had 700 select men. Now, this is an interesting passage. The word there that's translated select uh, is the word bakor, which is the word that is also translated elect. And it's the word that is used to talk about uh, election in the Old Testament. But what's important here is to recognize is that this really should be translated choice men. Choice men are men who are qualified to serve in this position. And so they had to pass a test. Now, we've studied this before in the, in the um, uh, parable of the, um, uh, of the banquet in heaven that those who don't have the right clothes are, not, are kicked out of the banquet that occurs uh, in heaven at the end of the tribulation period. They're kicked out because they don't have the right clothes. And at the end it says many... Uh, many are invited, many are called, but few are choice. The, and when you read that whole parable, I may, maybe I need to come back and look at this next time, but when you look at that whole parable, the king has sent out invitations, and they were re rebuffed. And then he sends out invitations to everyone, and some show up, but they don't have the right clothes. The only people who are making a choice are the people that are coming to the banquet. So when it says it's translated, many are chosen, the king isn't choosing anybody. The only choice that is made is those that are coming. And it shouldn't be translated, many are chosen, many are choice. The choice has to do with they're qualified because they are wearing the right robes, the white robes. And the white robes represent the fact that as believers... We have the righteousness of Christ. We are declared righteous because his righteousness was imputed to us at the instant that we trusted Christ as Savior. And so we are qualified because, uh, not because of anything we do, but because we possess the righteousness of Christ. So this word elect, as it's translated so often in the uh, New Testament, I think that's a bad translation. It should be translated choice. They are choice ones because they possess the righteousness of Christ. How do they get it? By believing in Jesus Christ as their Savior. So it uses the word again in the next verse. Verse 16, among all this people were 700 choice men. I've translated it that way now. They were choice men. What qualified them? They were left-handed and everyone could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. In other words, they could hit the bullseye of the target at any distance without missing it more than just a couple of millimeters. They were crack shots with their slings. 
left-handed. And so that's what qualified them to be part of this uh, special force of slingers. Now that brings us up to the setting of the stage of the three battles, and the three battles covers the next 30 verses. So we've only covered 17 verses, but the Holy Spirit wants us to pay attention to what happens in these battles because he spends 30 verses on it. So we'll come back and finish up with this uh, next time. Father, thank you for being able to uh, give, for us having the ability to look at these episodes, these stories, seeing validated here the principles that are clearly taught elsewhere in the scriptures and the results that occur when a nation turns away from you and also the results that happen to a nation when they turn to you. And right now we are in a state of national chaos. Uh, We have wars going on on our borders. We're involved in uh, cold wars with uh, with uh, other nations and hot wars supporting a hot war with the Ukraine um, and Father we're making a lot of unwise decisions in terms of how we are utilizing uh, the storage of weapons and not uh, resupplying ourselves or, and it's it, it just going to lead to chaos and destruction and Father as believers we see this we know the danger that's here Yet, there's not much we can do about it except pray and vote. And, Father, we pray that we might stick with your word. That's the most important thing we can do is just internalize your word, stand strong, be a faithful witness to the gospel, to free grace, salvation in Jesus Christ, and that you might uh, just give us grace at this time in our nation that we might see a recovery but we fear that like Israel of old this will not take place and so Father we pray for the spiritual strength to deal with whatever comes our way based on your promises and relying upon you and we pray this in Christ's name Amen